I'm uh, Stoney Flowers, one of the pastors on staff here. Pastor Beatty is away on a mission trip in London, London, England, and they're ministering to a large population of Pakistan, uh, Pakistani and Muslims there. There's about a million of them there, and he's there with some other folks doing that, so it's kind of a cool thing. Well, this morning, before we begin, I just want to draw your attention to the bulletin you got on your way in, and a couple of things just for you to be reminded about. If you're visiting with us today, we'd love for you to fill out a Hey, I'm Here card and let us know that you're here. If you have any questions or prayer needs, we would love to do that. And also, inside your bulletin, you'll see a thing about 30 hours of hope. This is something we do, kind of short-term missions. You know, there's been a lot of things in the news about hurricanes in Texas and Florida and the Caribbean and, and all those places. But, you know, we had flooding here about a year and a half ago in North Carolina, and there's a lot of people who are suffering still from that. And so we feel like we need to go back to Lumberton. We've been there a couple times. We need to go back to Lumberton and help. There's uh, the Baptist men's organization we went with is blowing my email box up saying, we need volunteers. We have hundreds of homes that we're trying to get people back into. And so that's uh, November uh, the 17th and 18th. We leave at 2.30 on a Friday and get back on Saturday evening it's $25 for the whole weekend. That's lodging and uh, food and stuff like that. So if uh, you've never been on a short-term trip or you want to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus, you can sign up for that online. Well, before we get into the message this morning, I just feel like we need to pray again. There's been so much stuff going on with the Las Vegas shootings and all the past hurricanes and the present one. We just need to pray for God's people who are in the way of all these things are in the path of these tragedies. So, Lord, we just uh, give you thanks this morning as we gather as your people. And, Lord, we acknowledge that there's a lot, a lot of folks, Lord, who were hurting. We had people that were killed in a tragic shooting in Las Vegas and many wounded. And Lord, we ask, God, that you would send your healing power to them. Watch over those families. And for the people who are still recovering from all the storms and the floods, Lord, would you give them your grace? Lord, send your people to be the hands and feet of our Lord to help and show God's love to them. And so, Lord, we just give you thanks this morning for this time together as we open your word and we ask, Lord, that your presence be manifest here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us too, I want to make sure that you join us in the coffee bar after service or some muffins and coffee and hopefully some conversations to get to know you. We're continuing our study of the Apostles' Creed, and last week Pastor Beatty shared from the Apostles' Creed about Jesus being God's eternal Son and the details around his virgin birth. And this week I'll be sharing the next section of that creed where it talks about the suffering of Jesus that he endured for us. Before we begin that, though, I'm going to do a little bit of review. Maybe you're visiting with us this morning for the first time. When we say creed, what does that mean? The word creed comes from the Latin word that means I believe. And so we're saying I believe these things that we're affirming. The Apostles' Creed is a historical set of biblical truths about God in which we all hold as Christians to be unchangeable by man or culture. Now, it doesn't contain all the teachings of the Bible. However, it does provide us with a very succinct statement about the essential beliefs that all believers should hold in unity together. 
The history of this creed goes back to about 175 A.D. And even in the early church, we find that people that were coming for baptism would learn and memorize this creed and they would recite it as part of their baptismal confession. The church has always used this creed for a long time as part of our worship as we affirm what we believe together as Christians. You know, today if you're having a conversation with someone, this creed is a great way. If they ask you, well, what do you really believe? Right here it is. This is essentials of what we believe as Christians. It's something that you can share with them and share your faith. You know, in this creed, we see God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. We see him talking about, it, it talks about Jesus, God's eternal son. It talks about the Holy Spirit. We look at the Trinity. We see that God created everything. We see that Jesus, God's only eternal son, suffered for us. He died, was buried, and rose from the dead. And he's now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he's coming back to judge the quick and the dead. You know, in my own life, I remember saying this creed as a child and even as a young adult, and I really didn't fully understand what I was affirming. You know, a lot of us, we learn the Pledge of Allegiance, the Boy Scout, the Girl Scout pledges, or we memorize songs and we sing the words not really understanding what they're meaning. But when it comes to our faith and a creed of the church, it's important that we understand what we're saying, what we're confessing to be true, that we understand what we're saying. You know, for many years I've been going to the Challenge Farm in January. A couple of reasons. One, it's cheaper in January to go than in the summer months. But the main reason is it's a great time of year to go. It's the beginning of the year. And each year the farm picks a ministry theme for the kids to learn. This year it's on the Ministry of Reconciliation. And the kids are given a a big portion of scripture and they're challenged to memorize it. They quote it at school, they quote it at church, and at special services. And when I visited the farm over the last few years, I love to help the kids get started on their memory verses. But a lot of the kids are like sponges. They can memorize it. I'm talking about four-year-old kids can memorize a long portion of Scripture. They get up in church and just stand there and just say it right off the bat. It's kind of, it's kind of fun to do that. I love to sit down with the kids and let them recite the verses to me. I always praise them for hiding the Word of God in their heart. But then I ask them a question. Tell me what it means. And they kind of look at me with a stare or they shrug their shoulders. See, it's great that they've memorized Scripture, that they can say it, but they don't understand what they're confessing. And my prayer for us as a church as we continue studying this creed over the next few weeks, it, it will not just be some kind of congregational confession or a creed that we memorize, but it becomes very personal to us, that it becomes a personal uh, confession of our hearts and our faith that we can share with other people. But it needs to be personal. We need to see how it applies to us. Now last Sunday, David shared that part of the creed where it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
Today we're going to look at the next section of that where it talks about the suffering of Jesus that he endured for us. And it says, Jesus, he suffered under Pontius. Pilate was crucified dead and was buried and descended to the dead. That's the part of the creed we're going to cover today. So we have a lot to cover. Now you may notice at first that this creed goes from last week where it talked about Jesus born of a Virgin Mary and it goes right into suffered under Pontius Pilate. The creed leaves out anything about Jesus' daily life, his childhood, his miracles, his teaching, ministry, anything. Why is that? You know the Gospels of, of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend one-third of their writings, and John, the Gospel of John, spends a half of its whole writing of the Gospel devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, what we call Passion Week. Why do you think this is so? I believe the Apostles' Creed and the Gospels were not meant to give us all the history about Jesus as much as it was to declare the purpose of His coming which was through His suffering and death, God the Father would bring redemption to us, forgiveness of sin. That's the purpose that Jesus came for, to forgive us. Now, this week's beginning section states that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. It seems really strange, it always seems strange to me, that a great creed of the church that talks about our salvation would mention and have in it a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate who hated Jews, who was not a believer. It's included in this creed and it leaves out the great heroes of the faith like Abraham and Moses, the Apostle Paul. Why is that so? I believe that Pontius is included here in the creed to help validate the reality of the things around Jesus' suffering for us. See, not only is there a biblical record of a man named Pontius Pilate, we have outside historical writings from Jewish and Roman historic, historical writers confirming this fact, that there was a man named Pontius and there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And they both confirmed that on the day before Passover, around 30 AD, that Pilate condemned Jesus to death by Roman crucifixion. See, I believe Pilate was purposely mentioned in this creed to authenticate this through a historical record of the evidence of Jesus, his suffering, his death, and burial, and resurrection. It's not just in our Bible. It's in history. It's part of history. And the other reason I believe that Pontius is included is to remind us that God's kingdom is more powerful than any government or political power on this earth. And some people think that the government is more stronger than God or political. He's, they're not. God is in control. He is sovereign. You know, if you look in the Gospel of John, when Pilate has a little time there with Jesus, he told Jesus this. He said, I have the power to either free you or crucify you. And look what Jesus, how he replies to Pilate. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. See, in other words, the suffering and what Jesus was about to face was all in God's control. We must understand that nothing could have stopped God's eternal plan for us. 
to redeem us, that he sent his only son to die for us, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, if we look at the days leading up to this encounter that Jesus is going to have with Pontius Pilate, we find Jesus telling his disciples, here's what's coming, guys. Matthew, Mark, I mean, uh, Mark 10, 33 through 34, it says, See, we are going to, to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. See, Jesus is telling his disciples, this, wasn't, this is what's coming. We know that when Jesus enters Jerusalem on that day, riding on that donkey and the people are praising him and saying, Hosanna in the highest, and they got the palm branches and they're throwing their clothes, their cloaks before him, a sign of authority. Jesus makes a big uproar in the city. Then he goes into the temple courts. and He's angered by the merchants and the money changers. He even challenges the Jewish leadership. And see, these Jewish leaders, where they become very afraid, they realize that they're losing their reputation or it's at stake. They're fearful of the possibility of losing their power and control over the people. And this, is, this causes the chief priests and the elders to meet and devise a plan to do away with Jesus, to kill him. And they think they had control, but it was all in God's plan. Look at Matthew 26, 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. See, they want to do this in secret. See, we know that Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night in the garden, and he was dragged before the Sanhedrin, the, these chief priests and scribes. And they put on him these false charges and they brought him in there and said, what about this and what about that? Jesus did not refute any charge. He didn't defend himself. He just remained silent. Thus fulfilling Isaiah 53, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus that says, like a lamb, he was led to a slaughter. He did not open his mouth. However, in that time with the Sanhedrin, when they asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of God? He answered in an affirmative way. He says, yes, you have said so. And in Matthew 26, we see the reaction of these religious leaders. They had what they wanted. They wanted to charge Jesus in some way to do away with him. So they charged him with blasphemy. And they agreed together that he deserved death. They spat in his face and they hit him. See, the suffering of Jesus had begun even before his time with Pilate. The second part of Jesus' suffering begins to unfold as he is dragged before Pontius Pilate. If you look back at Mark 10, it says that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now he's before Pilate. See, during this time in Jerusalem, it was under Roman rule and Pontius Pilate was the governor in charge of all the legal affairs, including condemning people to death. Now Jesus was taken before Pilate early, early in the morning, probably around 6 o'clock. 
The Jewish leaders had charged Jesus with blasphemy and which was punishable by death in the Jewish law. However, it was not the same under Roman law. That did not have the penalty of death. See, Pilate could have, and he should have, said, go away, this is not, I don't have anything to do with this, this is between y'all. But Pilate gave in to these Jewish leaders and to the crowd, that early morning crowd that had assembled that day. Now, why would a man of such authority, a Roman authority, give in to all these, this small crowd that was formed that morning? I think the Jewish leader Josephus gives us the answer by question, giving us some, shedding some light on this man named Pontius Pilate. See, he was a man known for briberies and insults. It is reported that he had ordered many executions in the past without having a trial. He had stolen money from the temple treasury and used it to build aqueducts and other building projects in Jerusalem. He had overstepped his authority with the Jewish people many times in the past and treated them very, very harshly. But you see, he all did this kind of under the cover of his leadership there. Because the, the emperor of Rome at that time was Tiberius. And he had given orders, strict orders to all the governors in that region. You are to treat the Jewish people with great respect. If the emperor had found out how Pontius Pilate was really treating the people in Jerusalem, he'd have lost his post as governor. And see, the Jewish leaders, these Jewish leaders, they knew the law of the land and they knew that they could use Pilate's treatment of the people against him. In other words, they used political pressure to get what they wanted, namely, to kill Jesus. Here's an interesting thing. Pilate, when he questioned Jesus, he found him innocent. And even his own wife said, you know, I've had a dream. This is really troubling me. Don't have anything to do with that righteous man. Did he listen? No, that tells you right there. If a man don't listen to his wife, you know, he's not very smart. Especially when she says, you know, I had a dream about this. You need to be careful. That goes for all the married men. You probably got an elbow in the side. But see, during Passover each year, and Passover was the next day, it was customary for the governor to release a criminal or a prisoner of the people's choosing. And maybe Pilate thought that there was no way that this crowd was going to pick a criminal over Jesus because this man was innocent. But in Matthew 27, we find out what happens. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. He was a really, really bad, hardened criminal. And they wanted to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. See, this crowd that morning didn't represent the people of Jerusalem that met Jesus on the way in. It was a small crowd. Remember, it was 6 a.m. in the morning. It was really early. Most people were still at home asleep. This crowd was made up of the Sanhedrin and other Jewish leaders and their allies. It was really a hand-pricked crowd that had the same agenda to do away 
with Jesus to kill him. And then we find Matthew 27 where kind of Pilate's last attempt to let Jesus go. After this unsuccessful attempt, he tries to wash his hands of the whole thing. Look what he says. When Pilate, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And they said, the people said, let, the, let his blood be on us and our children. And they released Barabbas and had Jesus taken to be flogged. Now the truth is, although Pilate thought himself to be innocent, he was guilty of a great injustice or sin. He was more concerned about his own political career and himself than other people. He was self-centered. I believe that many suffer from that today. It's all about me. That same sin of self-centeredness. But you see, when we go and we confess this creed that we believe in God Almighty, we believe in His Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit, it should call us to live a life of not self-centeredness, but a life that is God-centered. Understanding that we are all guilty of sin, just like Pilate. And we can't escape our sins or the need for our forgiveness by just washing our hands of the truth about Jesus and His blood. It doesn't work. It does not work. And Pilate gives in to the pressure of the crowd and he charges Jesus with being an enemy of the state. And he takes and has his soldiers to take him to be flogged or scourged. Now what, what did that mean? Jesus would have been stripped of his clothes and he'd have been tied to a whipping post. And these two soldiers would take small whips with long leather straps and they would put bone in pieces of shards of metal and they would take turns applying that to the back of Jesus and those pieces of bone and metal would cut all the way to the bone, sometimes into the chest cavity. And they took turns doing that and they kept, they kept beating Jesus almost to death the Bible says that he was beaten beyond recognition. Excruciating pain. And see, this was just the beginning of the suffering that Jesus endured for us. I want this to be personal to us this morning. I want you to, when you confess his creed, I want it to become very, very personal. Not just a congregational confession but a personal confession. So this morning, can we do this together? I want to, as we go through this, I want to confess these parts of the creed that it makes it more personal. So, so can you say and confess with me, I believe Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate for me. Can we say that? I believe Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate for me. See, it's a little different than we say us or you. When we say me, becomes personal. Jesus not only suffered under Pontius, but his suffering would increase under Pontius as he goes through Roman crucifixion. You know, the word crucifixion comes from the Latin meaning fixed to a cross. It was one of the most painful and disgraceful methods of punishment and death in the ancient world. It was reserved for the worst of criminals, but that day, 
not a criminal, but the eternal Son of God would be crucified for us. God would suffer for us that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And many times when we talk about crucifixion, and I've done this in sermons, when we talk about it and all it entails, we tend to describe it in such a, uh, such a way it's, non, it's really not personal. We use the words like victim or they. However, today I wanted the details of this, of Jesus' suffering, to affect us more on a personal level. Let's say you came up on a, you witnessed a bad car wreck. Would it personally affect you? Would you stop to help? Would you slow down to look? Or would you just drive on by? You don't know the person. So maybe you don't want to get personally involved or you don't want to be affected by that. However, if you saw and witnessed a wreck and it was one of your family members and you knew it and it was somebody you had a close relationship with, it would affect you personally. Especially if they were in pain and agony. When you got out of the car and stopped and went over there, you would take on, you would feel their pain. It would become very, very personal to you. So as we look at the suffering of Jesus on the cross, I pray that it become very personal to you this morning. I want to put a picture up and give you a little warning. This is a graphic picture from Passion of the Christ. So if maybe if you've got small children, you might want to cover their eyes for a few minutes. And this is a, just a replica, but you know something? It was worse than this. Jesus was almost beaten to death. The Bible says he was unrecognizable. He was beaten so bad almost to the point he had to have someone carry his cross. And so then when he gets to the, he's led outside of town to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skulls, what we know as Calvary. And once he arrives, they lay him down and they, they, bond, they bound up his hands and his feet and they lay him on a wooden cross and they take long spikes and they drive in each side of his hand and cross his legs and put a spike through. And then they stand him up and when he's standing up, the pain in the hands and the feet is extreme. And the problem is he cannot breathe because when you're, when you're hanging like this, your diaphragm is over your abdomen. You can breathe in, but you cannot exhale. And the only way to breathe is to stand up on your feet and pull up on your hands. And when Jesus does that, when He stands up, guess what? The, all the open wounds in His back rub across the wooden cross in, in extreme, extreme pain. And with each breath, Jesus becomes weaker and weaker and weaker until he finally dies of asphyxiation because he just cannot stand up again. See, the suffering of Jesus was unimaginable and he did that for us. He did that for you. He did that for me. See, we need to make it personal because he did it for us. This is what we normally see. We see crosses. We're inundated with crosses on the outside of the building, the inside of the building. But I really believe that we're so inundated with symbols today that they lose their meaning. 
I mean, we, we see an apple, apple with a bite out of it, and we instantly think of iPhones and iPads. We see golden arches when we ride down the road, and we think of McDonald's or a cheeseburger. But what about when we see the cross of Calvary? Does it affect us? Has it lost its meaning in our culture? Does it quicken our hearts to think about the unimaginable suffering of Jesus? See, my prayer for us is that every time we see it, every time we see a cross, it will affect us personally. And our, and our thinking will go to what Jesus endured for us. Let us confess together, I believe Jesus was crucified for me. I believe Jesus was crucified for me. The next thing we need to know that we see in the creed is that Jesus not only was crucified, but He died. He didn't have a coma. He didn't go into a coma. He didn't pass out. He died. Matthew's Gospel tells us that darkness fell over the land for three hours. And during this time, Jesus was not only, He not only suffered physically, He also suffered the spiritual pain of being removed from the Father. As the Father turned His head from Jesus, His own Son while He takes on our sins. And we hear the pain in His voice from the last words from the cross. He cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In John's Gospel, Jesus is recording, recorded saying, It is finished. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. After these words are spoken, Jesus gives up His Spirit. He gave up His life. No one took Jesus' life. He gave it willingly for us. In John 19.31, you'll see overhead, John writes the events of what's happening at the cross that day. And the witnesses that day solved for themselves how Jesus had died. That not a bone was broken how the soldiers had pierced his side and caused water and blood to flow out. They saw the darkness. They felt the earthquake. They knew that the temple curtains tore in two, all fulfilling the prophecies around Jesus' death, our Messiah, the one who came to die for us. And Jesus did this for us. And John writes here, these, he writes these things that you may also believe. Believe what? That Jesus came, He suffered, and He died for us. He laid down His life for us. So let us confess together, I believe Jesus died for me. Next thing is that Jesus was buried. You know, the normal way of Roman crucifixion was not to take the body down at the end of the day. It was to leave the victim on the cross until they utterly decayed. They didn't take them down. They left them. It was a form of intimidation that the Roman government used. Don't mess with Rome. This is what's going to happen to you. But because of the Passover, the next day, Jesus' body was removed as we saw in John 19. You know, the two criminals that day that were crucified with Jesus were more than likely had ended up in the garbage dump outside 
the city of Jerusalem. There was, it was a trash dump and, an, and it was a place for the disposal of people who were unworthy of proper burial. A fire was kept burning there all the time to incinerate the trash in the bodies. See, this would have been a place assigned to the wicked. However, Jesus was buried in a tomb. He was not placed in the place of the wicked. It fulfills Isaiah 53, 9, which says, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. The Gospel of Matthew 27, we see what happened, the, surround, the events surrounding Jesus' burial. We know that there was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea who went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body and it was granted to him. And we know from the Gospel of John that he was accompanied by Nicodemus. Now these two men had been secret disciples of Jesus, but not today. On the day of Jesus' death, the boldness of their faith is revealed to everyone. Joseph was a rich man and he had a, t- a new tomb that had never been used. And they placed Jesus there and prepared his body and they rolled a large stone over the entrance. See, Jesus was buried in a tomb which was fit for a king because he was and he is our king. He was not left on the cross. He was not placed in the grave of the wicked. But he was buried. As this creed confesses. So let us confess this. I believe that Jesus was buried for me. You're getting better at that. And then the last thing. That he descended to the dead. This last statement has been a point of contention in the church for a while. Around 700 A.D., the wording of this creed said that he descended into hell. But see, the word hell in Hebrew means sheol or grave. See, the original meaning of this and what it means is that Jesus physically died and went to the place just like when we die that we're dead. Physically dead. He experienced death in the grave. His physical body was completely dead for three days. And Jesus experienced this hellish suffering, this pain and this agony and death for us. And He did this for us that when we die, we won't experience eternal death, but we will experience eternal life. That's why He came. So let's confess the last part of this creed. I believe that Jesus descended to the dead for me. I want to close with a couple of passages of Scripture. One from Isaiah. But I want you to walk away this morning as you confess this creed that you do this with a boldness. As you confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate for me, that Jesus was crucified for me, that He died for me, that He was buried for me, that He descended to the dead for me. You're not only going to say it and repeat it, but it's going to become a personal conviction of your hearts. 
This passage from Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus was born, talking about the suffering servant. I want to close with this passage. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that there's anyone here that does not have a personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe they've always kind of put Him at bay. Or maybe they tried to wash their hands of the truth around Jesus. Lord, today be the day that they hear Your knocking on their heart. So if that's you today, if you've never asked Jesus into your life, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right where you're sitting. So I'll ask that you just pray this prayer in your heart. That it become personal. Lord Jesus, admit that I'm a sinner. Lord, I need you. Lord, would you come and wash me clean? Take away my sins. Lord, would you come into my life and lead it and guide it? Be my personal Lord and Savior. And I give you thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen.